0: A soldier stands in the middle of a room. In this room are a king, a high priest, and a wealthy man. Each of these men orders the soldier to kill the other two. Whom does the soldier obey? Who does he kill? This is the question that Varys poses to Tyrion Lannister in A Game of Thrones. It's a riddle that speaks to the distinction between power and authority. It raises questions about the nature of legitimacy. Questions that philosophers, politicians, and political scientists have been grappling with for centuries. This is Social Science Fiction. You're listening to Social Science Fiction, a podcast that blends political science and nerd culture, examining the politics of science fiction and fantasy. We sometimes speak of power and authority as if they are synonymous with each other. But in fact, there's an important distinction between these terms. In Varys' hypothetical scenario, who in that room has power? Undoubtedly the soldier. He has the sword. He is armed. He is trained to fight. He could easily overpower and kill the other three men in that room. He has the means to impose his will on others. He has power. But does he have authority? In general, by authority, we mean the right to exercise power. Both a cop and an armed criminal have power. Only one has authority. So who has authority in that room? Who will the soldier obey? And the answer, according to Varus, is that power resides where people believe it resides. No, I think what Varus means is authority, but in a sense, it amounts to the same thing. Once you have authority and people perceive that you have authority, they are more likely to obey you, and that now gives you power. If the soldier is a pious man and believes the high priest truly does speak for the gods, he will likely see the high priest as having authority, having the right to rule. He will obey him, and thus his power becomes the high priest's power. Thus, power resides where men believe it resides. In essence, perception is reality. Now again, these questions of power and authority are questions that political scientists have been exploring for centuries. The famous German political scientist and historian Max Weber is perhaps best known for his discussion of legitimacy and how rulers gain legitimacy. Now by legitimacy, Weber meant that most people see the rule of this government as just, as appropriate. In other words, in the minds of most people, the government has true, just authority. They have a right to rule. They have a right to exercise power over others. That, in essence, is legitimacy. A government is legitimate if most of us believe it is legitimate. And this is a concept you find all over the place in the Song of Ice and Fire book series. Who has power? What power is legitimate? How do we determine what is legitimate? And in his writings on legitimacy, Weber argued there were basically three broad categories of sources of legitimacy. Traditional legitimacy, charismatic legitimacy, and legal rational legitimacy. Now, legitimacy derived from tradition is what we see most often in A Song of Ice and Fire, or if you prefer, the Game of Thrones TV series. Traditional legitimacy is, expectedly, based on tradition. A government is legitimate because things have always been that way. The king is the king because his father was king before him, and his father was king before that, and his father was king before that. This is the way things have always been done. This is the way things are supposed to be. This must be ordained by God or the gods. That is traditional authority. And again, it is all over the place in Game of Thrones. And this, of course, makes sense. The series is largely inspired by medieval European history. And the history of medieval Europe is a history of traditional authorities. A series of monarchies which derive legitimacy from the idea that this is the way things always have been and always will be, the way things are meant to be, and carried to the extreme. We see this elevated to the concept of divine right. That the king rules because God wants him to rule, because he has selected his family as being special. The Targaryens ruled for generations on this basis. After the Targaryens initially conquer Westeros and the Seven Kingdoms, they continue to hand down power through their bloodline and eventually establish a traditional authority. Even after the alliance of the Baratheons and the Starks overthrow the Targaryens, they still seek to legitimize themselves by rooting themselves in that same source of legitimacy. Even as they say the Targaryens have to go, they've gone mad, you still see the Starks and the Baratheons saying, well the next one of us to rule, in this case Robert Baratheon, has a right to rule because once you eliminate the Targaryens, if you trace the bloodlines, Baratheon is next closest to the throne. He is next in the line of succession. Which is why I would argue, in some ways, this rebellion is a momentous occasion for Westeros. In terms of ideology and the advancement of political ideas, there's really not a big change here. This isn't a revolutionary movement. The society isn't changed in any meaningful way. The government really doesn't change. The institutions remain the same. The source of legitimacy remains the same. What we see when Robert Baratheon overthrows the Targaryens and seizes the throne is really more of a coup than anything else. It's just the substitution of one ruler for another, with this ruler ruling over the same country, using the same institutions, in some cases the exact same individuals, to carry out his will in legitimizing himself through that same traditional claim to authority. Now, what A Song of Ice and Fire does that I really like is the series recognizes that these traditional claims to authority are ultimately bullshit. A Song of Ice and Fire is dark, gritty, low fantasy. This isn't high fantasy with noble knights and noble kings who rule because they are just and because God does indeed want them to rule. This isn't Arthur in Camelot. This is a reflection of actual human history. The kings and the nobles who hold power in Westeros legitimize themselves on the basis of appeals to tradition and to religious authority. But in fact, they hold power because their ancestors seized power by force of arms. Ned Stark will proudly talk about his ancestors like Bran the Builder who built the wall and established his noble Stark house and how this gives his family a right to rule but we can see that it's bullshit. The individuals who rule, the Baratheons, the Lannisters, they're mostly scumbags, they have no great virtues. They rule simply because their ancestors seized power and they have managed to hold on to power since then. And over time have created this myth that says this is the way things have always been and there is a certain justice to it. And what's interesting about the series is it seems like the more clever characters are aware of this. They tend to recognize it. Tyrion Lannister, on at least one occasion, acknowledges that the Lannisters are not great noble people, that they are probably just descended from some warlord, some violent leader of bandits who claimed a piece of land for himself and handed it off to his descendants. And over time, people came to see that as just and the way things are supposed to be. In other words, Tyrion Lannister sees the history of Westeros through the same lens as the political scientist Mansur Olson. Now, Olson wrote about the birth of the state early forms of government in Olson's argument was that early governments evolved essentially from banditry. Before the state, before there were organized governments in control of large chunks of territory, you had what Olson called roving bandits. Think things like the Vikings as presented in fiction today. Think about the villains in a lot of medieval fantasy stories. Gangs of men with swords riding around, roaming the land, rolling into a village, killing everybody, setting everything on fire, taking anything of value, and riding off again. And Olson argued what likely happened far in our past was some enterprising bandit leader figured out it's probably more efficient, cheaper, more profitable to set up shop in one place. Why wander the land, burning everything, and robbing people all over the place when you can just set up camp in one village and keep taking stuff from them over and over again? And so the roving bandit becomes the stationary bandit. Staying in one place, taking from the same people over and over again. And over time, the stationary bandit realizes, I can't take everything from these people or they'll just stop working for me. They'll stop producing anything because why continue to work and produce things when I'm going to take everything from them? So he starts to take only a portion of what they produce. Maybe he calls this a tribute. Maybe he calls it taxes. Whatever he calls it, he takes only a portion of what the people produce in exchange for not killing them and burning down their village. And the stationary bandit also realizes... He's got to eliminate any competitors. If any other bandits come into his turf, he's got to fight them off to make sure they don't ruin the good thing he's got going. So he starts defending his borders. He realizes he has to keep the peace among the people he's now controlling and robbing from. Because if fights break out, they become less efficient. They're no longer producing for him. So he starts enforcing what will become a system of law. And over time, he has created a government. And perhaps when he dies, he hands off power to his son, who continues to do the same thing, participate in the same game. And he hands things off to his son and his son. And once we're a few generations down the road, everybody has forgotten how this all began. Everybody's forgotten that this all began when the king's ancestor rode into this village and said, give me your stuff or I'll kill you. Instead now, we have rulership by people who don't just have power, don't just have force of arms to keep the people in line, but actual legitimate authority. The people now see what is happening as just. Arguably, this is the source of a lot of the medieval kings of Europe. And as Tyrion Lannister recognizes, this is really the source of the Lannisters and the Baratheons and the Starks, and the Targaryens. The Targaryens, we know for certain this is the case. The Targaryens came to Westeros, burned down anybody that resisted them, seized power by force of arms, and enforced their rule on the entire continent. And only generations later did this truly come to be seen as legitimate by the vast majority of people in Westeros. Now, of course, this can go both ways. Tradition can make a king legitimate. Tradition can also delegitimize certain individuals, and we see this in Game of Thrones as well. The wildlings beyond the wall are no less human, they're no less Westerosi than any of the other people on the continent, but they are seen as being outside of the Westerosi nation. They are not part of this larger political community. They have no rights, they have no privileges in this system. They are forced to remain on the other side of the wall. Why? A matter of tradition. Again, it's Tyrion Lannister who points out the absurdity of this. Tyrion Lannister who says the only difference between me and a wildling is that when that wall went up, my ancestors were on the southern side of it. There are no inherent virtues that separate the southerners from the northerners. It is a matter of tradition that legitimizes one group and delegitimizes another. But what about the other sources of legitimacy? Well, Weber also said charisma could be a source of legitimacy. Now, this is the legitimacy that derives from force of personality. People see a ruler as legitimate because through the power of his raw charisma, through stirring speeches, he is able to sway people to his side to convince them that, of course, he should rule them. Of course he has this right. Now we see a little bit of this in Game of Thrones as well. It would seem the character of the High Sparrow, who later becomes the High Septon, would fall into this category. An individual who wins the support of the poor and the religious in Westeros through the power of his speeches, by living a pious life, by living the life the people expect a holy man to live, he wins a following. Not because of tradition. He was not born into any noble family. He simply lives a life and speaks in a way that inspires followers. And here, interestingly enough, legitimacy for the High Sparrow and his followers precede power. Whereas the noble families of Westeros, we know, descend from people who seized power and then sought to legitimize that power by building a tradition and a mythology around them, the High Sparrow and his people start off with no real power. They are armed, they're mostly a rabble of poor starving people, But the High Sparrow wins a following. He becomes a legitimate source of authority for many of the people of Westeros. And once he has won over the people, now he begins to wield actual power by being able to sway people to his cause, by being able to rile people up. And he uses this power to begin to seize more power for himself. We see the High Sparrow ordering his followers to embarrass the leaders of the Faith of the Seven, using this power to pressure those leaders to appoint the High Sparrow as the new High Septon and using this power to pressure the nobility to begin to give certain rights and privileges to his religious community. And in what I believe is the High Sparrow's greatest victory and Cersei Lannister's greatest blunder, resting from Cersei and the crown, the right to bear arms, the right to raise an army on behalf of the faith. And so we see the High Sparrow, then the High Septon, using his charisma to win legitimacy and then very real military power. And at a point of crisis for the crown, as the Lannisters in King's Landing are fighting a war against their rivals and facing internal turmoil, Cersei Lannister willingly says to a competing organization in her territory, yeah, you guys can also have a right to have arms and to raise an army and to use those forces to enforce your will on the public to some degree. And this decision will, of course, bite her in the ass. But at any rate, that is charisma as a source of legitimacy. And as another aside, this also speaks to the dangers that we've seen come up again and again when religious and secular authorities clash in sort of try to share legitimacy to one degree or another. We know that in Westeros the primary source of legitimacy for the noble houses is this tradition, this claim that it's always been this way, that their ancestors have always ruled and therefore they have a right to rule. But it seems that a lot of them also to some degree draw on religion. At least the southern nobles, the Starks have their old faith and so on, but for the most part the rest of them seem to at least in part seek to legitimize their rule by these appeals to religion. Apart from saying our ancestors, Ancestors ruled. They also seem to draw on this faith of the seven and say that they rule because they are part of this faith and the seven-faced god or however they describe it, this deity or group of seven deities, want them to rule. And Cersei Lannister clearly trying to get in with this religious community. She thinks she's being clever and playing her own games. But once she's opened that door and lent greater legitimacy to this religious establishment, she now has to compete with this organization for the support of the people. And again, as Varus tells us with that riddle, in a dispute between the king and the high priest, it's not always clear which side the average soldier or the average peasant is going to go. As a modern example, this is something that the monarchy of Saudi Arabia struggles with today. In Saudi Arabia, you have a ruling family, the Saad family, who largely seek to legitimize their rule by appeals to religion. The Saud family will tell their people, we have a right to rule because we are good Muslims. We have created in Saudi Arabia a good Muslim state. That arguably is a primary source of their legitimacy. And the challenge for the Saad family is once you have begun to derive legitimacy from a religious appeal, now you have to be concerned with what the religious establishment is saying about you. If the religious people start to turn on you, you may lose legitimacy. And now you've lost the people, and now you could be facing some kind of uprising. And this is something the Saad family has, again, struggled with for a couple generations now. The Sauds are consistently seeking to consolidate their power, to increase the power they have over their country, but there is always this knowledge in their minds that if the religious clerics, the ulama, turn on them, begin to tell the people, the Saud family, they are no longer good Muslims, they're no longer ruling Saudi Arabia justly, there is the concern that the people will turn on them. And so we've seen in Saudi Arabia sort of a pattern where when the Saud family seems to feel threatened feel weak, feel like they're facing some kind of threat or some kind of danger, they seem to defer more to what the religious authorities want. They seem to make more concessions to them, do more things that the ulama want, while when the Saud family is feeling strong, they feel powerful, they feel secure, they begin to push back against their religious establishment. They seek to take power from them, to do what they want to do, and seem to take more risks in terms of pissing off off the religious establishment. A few years ago, there was a lot of talk about how Saudi Arabia, under the leadership of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, was beginning to liberalize with regard to women's rights. Saudi Arabia was beginning to allow women to drive cars, for example. And this received a lot of praise from some pundits in the West who thought this was a great sign. Saudi Arabia is modernizing, they're reforming, they're liberalizing. And I was always a little less optimistic about the whole thing. Not to say that this wasn't a positive development, but I always suspected it was more of a case of testing the waters and seeing how much he could push back against the Saudi religious establishment. I always thought he probably wasn't giving women the right to drive because he actually cared about the issue, but because he knew it would piss off the religious officials, and he wanted to see if he could do it and get away with it. And when he seemingly did, I think he took it as a sign that he could begin to consolidate power more for himself. And so I've wondered since then, in the future, if we might not see Saudi Arabia moving away to some degree from legitimizing their rule solely on the basis of religious claims and shifting to other things. Maybe more of just relying on tradition or the fact that the Saad family provides peace and stability and prosperity to its citizens and so on. And if so, we may see... Saudi Arabia become possibly less of an overtly religious state, but it's certainly not going to democratize or become a model of liberalism in the Middle East. But still, it is a sign that things may be changing in Saudi Arabia, and arguably, as one final side note, Saudi Arabia recently moving towards formalizing peace with Israel. Could be another sign that these kinds of changes are coming, that Saudi Arabia is becoming less interested in legitimizing their rule on the basis of being good Muslims as they define the idea and less about we're fighting the evil Israel as good Muslims and will begin to more legitimize themselves on the basis of other things. But anyway, this just speaks to the very real conflict that can arise between competing secular and religious sources of legitimacy in a state. But anyway, getting back to the Game of Thrones stuff. That's charismatic legitimacy. Finally, Weber described legal rational legitimacy. In other words, a government that legitimizes itself on the basis of having a clearly established legal process that everybody understands and everybody abides by. And of course, democracies are the best example of this. We view our governments as legitimate because they won elections. Whether you like the outcome or not, you know that the people holding power won a free, fair election according to rules and procedures that are the same for everybody and everybody understands and everybody agreed to ahead of time. That's legal rational legitimacy. And by the way, it need not be actual elections and democracy. That's the most common in the real world. But I think you could make the case that you could have legal rational legitimacy coming from other procedures as long as those procedures are, again, agreed to ahead of time, free, fair, the same for everybody. For example, arguably, Wakanda's government derives legitimacy from a legal rational process. Leaders of the various tribes that make up the Wakandan state are free to fight each other. The rules of these fights are agreed to ahead of time. Everybody agrees that the winner gets to become the king. It's a legal, rational process, not a democracy, but it's something that people agree to ahead of time and everybody abides by. And the fact that in Black Panther, the guy that most people don't want to be the leader wins the fight and people end up swearing allegiance to him speaks to the fact that this system is pretty stable and people in Wakanda truly do see it as legitimate. They are willing to support and obey a leader they don't necessarily like because he took part in the process fairly and won. And of course, Game of Thrones being a dark, gritty, medieval style world, we don't really see any legal, rational legitimacy in the story. At least none I could think of. Maybe some of those city-states that we see a little bit of out in the East have something like that, but nothing that's really explored in detail as far as I can remember. And again, this makes sense. Game of Thrones, A Song of Ice and Fire, is a reflection largely of medieval Europe, and medieval Europe didn't really begin to move away from traditional sources of authority and towards legal rational authority until after Europe had begun to modernize and feudalism had been replaced with true states and so on. So. Arguably, Westeros is a long way off from legal, rational legitimacy. But ultimately, whatever source of legitimacy you're looking at, it sort of comes down to the same thing. Again, as Varys says, power, or in this case, authority, legitimacy, resides where men believe it resides. Perception is reality. And that's why so much of A Song of Ice and Fire is about individuals not just seeking to gain power but seeking to legitimize their power. And for me, those are the best parts of the books and the early seasons of the TV show. The characters struggling to find a way to win support for their cause. Not just raise the armies, but also convince people that they have a right to rule. Convince people... To fight for them. Really, the first book largely revolves around the mystery of John Aaron's death, and we discover that the murder is motivated by a desire to keep secret the fact that the Baratheon children are not actually the children of Robert Baratheon, which would screw up their claim to legitimacy and throw the entire system into chaos. The later books involve a war between competing armies, all with alternate sources of legitimacy. Stannis Baratheon seeking to root his claim in that same tradition i have a right to rule because i'm next in line my brother's kids are illegitimate they're not his kids i'm the next oldest brother i get to rule his younger brother seeming to draw more on charisma a stark distinction being made between the dour cold uncharismatic stannis and his younger brother who is kind of a pretty boy and likes to party like robert and has friends and supporters and so on along with the Lannisters seeking to cover up the truth about Joffrey, along with the Starks trying to break from this system altogether and establish a new rule for themselves on the basis of their uniqueness, their separateness from the rest of Westeros. And all of it comes down to perception. Who is perceived to have a right to rule? And that's why I like the A Song of Ice and Fire trilogy and at least the early seasons of the TV show before things kind of went in a more generic action-adventury direction and we kind of lost a lot of the interesting political intrigue and so on. But at any rate, I'd argue that is the core takeaway and one of the primary themes running throughout A Song of Ice and Fire. Politics is about perceptions. It's not just about raw power. It's about how you legitimize that power illegitimate power tends not to last very long. And so that's legitimacy through the lens of A Song of Ice and Fire. George R.R. R. Martin, please finish at least one of these books. We'd love to keep talking about this and move this story forward and get a better ending than what we got from the TV show. I'll probably complain about that at some point in the future. But yeah, that's it. Thanks for listening. And side rant. Okay, I know I pissed some of you off a couple weeks ago when I criticized the San Junipero episode of Black Mirror, and I'm just going to continue this trend of being a contrarian. This week, I want to tell you why I hate the Starks, and especially Ned and Rob. Now look, I know everybody loves the Starks. They're good and noble, and yay, yay, they're they're the they're the good guys. We root for them, and Sean Bean is great, and all that. Look, the Starks suck, and let me tell you why. I would respect the Starks a lot more if they weren't forcing other innocent people to risk their lives and die for their causes. And I'd also respect them more if I thought their cause was anything more than wanting to protect their personal feelings of moral superiority. Because that's what I think Ned Stark is ultimately after. Ned Stark is a man who primarily cares about feeling good about himself. He's constantly concerned with what will make him feel like a good person to the point where he puts other people at risk to serve this cause. And if he was only risking his own life for this, then that would be his choice. But he's knowingly sacrificing other people to serve this cause. At the end of the book A Game of Thrones, and at the end of the first season of the show, the truth finally comes out. Ned Stark discovers that Robert Baratheon's children are not his. They're the illegitimate children of Jaime and Cersei Lannister. And he at least suspects that the Lannisters are behind the murder of his friend John Aaron, and murdered him to keep the secret, and they are behind the death of Robert Baratheon. He knows the Lannisters are about to seize power for themselves, and he knows that when they do, he, his whole family, everybody connected to him, along with a whole lot of other innocent people, are going to be at risk. And he has a brief window of opportunity to do something about it. And during this window, he has two different men come to him and offer to help him defeat the Lannisters, save himself and his family, and prevent the rise of some fairly evil people to power in Westeros. Renly Baratheon comes to him. Hey, I've got an army. I've got support. Just back me. We can put down the Lannisters and take power and then we're safe. Littlefinger comes to Ned Stark. Hey, grab the Lannister kids. Declare yourself the temporary protector of the realm. And then once we have power, we'll figure out what to do from here. Ned Stark turns them both down because it's not right. Not the right thing to do. Stannis is supposed to be in charge. So screw you, Renly. I'm not taking your help. And I don't use children as a hostage. Which, by the way, Is totally bullshit and hypocritical for Ned Stark to say because what is Theon Greyjoy? Ned Stark has been raising Theon Greyjoy for years and yes, they make it out like oh He's and he's part of the family. He's like an adopted. He's an adopted son No, Theon Greyjoy is a hostage Ned Stark has been holding on to this kid for years took him away from his family took him away from everything He ever knew to hold on to him so that Theon's father doesn't start another war. He's been holding on to a hostage for years, but suddenly he's going to say, no, it'll make me feel bad as a person to grab these kids and use them to keep Cersei in line, knowing for a fact that Cersei has already killed people and will likely try to kill other people if you don't have some means to control her. I mean, watching Ned Stark turn down these offers of help, it's like the joke about the man in the flood who keeps turning down people coming by in boats and helicopters because he's sure that God will save him so he doesn't need help from anybody else, and the man finally dies in the flood, he gets to heaven Hey God, what happened? why, Why didn't you save me? And God says, what are you talking about? I sent you a couple boats and a helicopter. This is Ned Stark at the end of his story. Just turning down any chance of coming out of this safely. And again, doing it because the things he has to do to win kind of make him feel bad. And again, if it was just him, if it was just his life on the line, I'd say it's his choice to make. And if he hadn't made a decision to insert himself into this situation, to accept Robert Baratheon's offer to come to King's Landing, to start investigating all of this, if he hadn't made that decision, and this had been forced on him, I might feel a little differently. But Ned Stark knew what he was getting into. He chose to go to King's Landing. He chose to begin investigating these things. He chose to put himself his children, the members of his house that go with him, the soldiers loyal to him, he brings them all to King's Landing, puts them all in danger, and then when he has a chance to do something to protect them all, he turns all this down, refuses to take any kind of meaningful action that might resolve the situation peacefully and in his favor, and instead, after pissing off Littlefinger by turning down his offer, Basically just trusts him to do the right thing. And of course, Littlefinger betrays him, and Ned Stark gets killed. And again, if it was just Ned Stark getting killed, whatever, he kind of he kind of brought that on himself. But everybody connected with him ends up dying. Everybody working for him gets slaughtered. His children are almost killed. They end up horribly traumatized. Ned Stark brought all that on those people so that he could feel good about himself. And he ends up passing this on to his son, by the way. Robb Stark, who we're all, I realize we're also supposed to love... Starts a war, marches an army of people loyal to him, trusting in him. South wins a bunch of battles, cuts a deal with the Freys to win their support, and then decides to piss them off. And again, he does it basically so he can feel good about himself. After agreeing to marry one of the Freys, he goes and knocks up another woman, and because he's feeling bad about himself, and he should, to ease his own conscience, he says, oh, I'm going to marry her. Well, it makes him feel better about himself, But now it pisses off the phrase, leads to his betrayal, the Red Wedding, and a whole bunch of people who trusted him, who were loyal to him, end up being slaughtered. Again, more deaths in the service of the stark ego in sense of moral superiority. The actual noble thing for Rob Stark to do in that scenario, apart from, you know, not sleep with a woman whose family he just conquered while he's betrothed to somebody else, apart from that is if he does do that, get her pregnant, say, Well, I'm kind of a scumbag. I did a horrible thing. I guess I just have to live with that now. I'm going to have to recognize I did a horrible thing and live with my guilt because I have a duty to support my cause and protect the people who are loyal to me. Instead, No, I'm going to do what will ease my conscience in the moment, marry the woman I got pregnant, and now I've set myself up to be betrayed and murdered along with all my people. This is the Starks, making boneheaded decisions because their primary interest in life is feeling good about themselves in the moment, and other people get killed for it. I really hate the Starks. So again, I realize taking a shot at a fan favorite, I get it. Let me know how wrong I am. I'm sticking by this. The Starks suck. And that's my side rant. Thank you. Hey everybody, thanks for listening. As always, I'd love to hear from you. Let me know what you like, what you don't like. I'd love to hear suggestions for future episodes. You can reach me on Twitter at Social Sci-Fi Show, on Facebook at Social Science Fiction Podcast, on Instagram at social underscore sci underscore fi, and you can email me at social science fiction show at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. See you next week.